I would like to do what I'm, I'm calling in my own mind a reverse commercial. Most of you have received the turquoise flyer when you came in, and if you haven't, we'll give you one on the way out. Penn has a fund for writers and editors with AIDS, and we are now welcoming applications. We have money to give, and we're trying to increase the outreach of this so that people all over the country will know that we have money for them. Um, I urge you to use your imagination with this flyer. One of the best things that ever happened is a number of years ago, I made an announcement like this at the beginning of an event, and someone in the audience had a friend in Maine who knew a bunch of writers who mailed the flyer to Maine, and it wound up on the front page of a, sm of a small town newspaper in Maine. And we got applications from writers in Maine that we never would have been able to reach. So send it around the country. If you know anybody who is uh, eligible, we really want to give this money to people who need it. Thank you. Hi. Uh, my name is Jerry Howard, and uh, I'm the chairman of the events committee of Penn. Uh, I'm glad you could be here tonight to hear from a representative sampling of new literary voices. Uh, I thank you for coming. I also want to extend uh, thanks to our co-sponsors, uh, the Creative Writing Program of New York University, and Charity Hume in particular, and the New York University Program Board, and David Sherman in particular, uh, and to Pamela Pierce, uh, our events coordinator, who never fails to get things together and to get out the word. Uh, I'll be very brief in order uh, not to step on our moderator, Vince Pissarro's line. Um, this is the second in a very short read two series of panels in, in September of each year that we've come to think of informally as the Penn American Center Back to School Specials. Uh, last year at this time, we put on a panel that asked the rhetorical question, are creative writing programs good for American writing? Uh, the panel uh, discussion that you are about to hear involves uh, fiction writers uh, under 30 or to be candid, uh, just over 30. Uh, but everyone up here is guaranteed to have been under 30 at one time. <laughs> um, this panel has perhaps as its uh, unstated rhetorical question, why write? Uh, it grew out of a sense that the mysterious process of the creation of literary generations had undergone another turn of the wheel, and that it was time to hear from the new generation just what they felt about their calling, their careers, their craft, and their art. Uh, we're very lucky to have as our moderator for this panel uh, Vince Pissarro, who is one of the smartest and best read reviewers and observers of the literary scene we have. He is, without question, the best book critic to emerge from Archbishop Malloy High School in the past two decades. Holy Cross, Jerry. Uh, you, you might call him the Kenny Anderson of book reviewing. Um, he is somewhere between 30 and 40 himself but he has an excellent memory and an ingrained sense of the progress of American literature down through the decades of this century. His reviews and pieces, which I never ever miss and which I always enjoy, have appeared in the late and sorely missed Seven Days, Mirabella, New York Newsday, Esquire, the New York Times Magazine, and other publications, uh, and, he is on, and he is at work on a novel himself for Random House. Vince will uh, introduce the panelists, make an opening statement of some sort himself, and then we'll hear uh, from the panelists themselves. 
then there will be a period uh, for questions. So I turn the proceedings over to Vince Cassara. Thanks, Jerry. It was Holy Cross, though. <coughs> the other mind-killing Catholic High School in Queens on Francis Lewis Boulevard. Um, can you hear? Is that on? Yeah. As Jerry said, the original title, not only conception, but title for this was Why Write? This turned out to be, I think, too scary a title for um, both the panelists, the audience, the organizers, and everyone else. But it is um, a question that gets to a certain historical sensibility, a sense that has arisen over the past decade or two decades that the fundamental mission, the fundamental purpose of being a writer has somehow changed, that there was a long and ongoing and largely masculine, I think, conception of what it meant to be a writer in America um, that was generally shared by writers and by readers of literature. Um, it had evolved from the 19th century and had certainly coalesced around certain key uh, books and, oh, there, they came in with the mic certain key books and certain key authors and figures who represented the prototype of the writer. I think for many decades, writers were very affected by James Joyce's portrait of the artist as a young man, the conception of Stephen Dedalus as the young and alienated and uh, eventually exiled um, artist who swears to forge in the smithy of his soul the uncreated conscience of his race. This is not something I think people walk around thinking about much anymore, or at least it's something that we don't believe collectively people walk around thinking anymore. There are too many races. There's too much uncertainty about what a conscience might be and what it might require. I think also it, uh, uh, in T.S. Eliot's tradition and the individual talent and other essays by T.S. Eliot, there emerged a conception that prevailed well into the 50s and certainly into the 60s of the artist as a somewhat uh, spiritually charged, slightly monastic person in a quest for truth and up against a certain aesthetic um, set of principles handed down through the ages of Western culture. None of these really prevail anymore. They prevailed even when I was in college, which was in 1975 I started college. But they were already fading, and I think they're certainly faded now. And we're not left with any kind of collective sense of what writers are, what they believe they're trying to do. Um, it's questionable now, I think in everyone's mind, whether we have the authority as writers to speak to the culture as a whole, whether the culture will ever listen or be present in an uh, attending way as one single comprehensible entity. There's a sense of the culture as an amorphous and enveloping uh, gelatinous absorbent that just turns in which every piece of writing is a commercial product that is consumed and forgotten. I think younger writers have grown up with this uh, marketplace and this sense of the culture. 
And so we're going to ask them tonight to tell us about, we found them all, we went out and collected them, they were romping youthfully on the greens of local villages, frolicking about in their youthful ways, watching MTV, and uh, they're going to tell us, I hope, what it is that made them become writers, and what it is they thought that meant, what it is that they thought they could accomplish as writers. Is it a commercial exercise? Is it, a, is it an exercise in, in, in catching a slice of the celebrity uh, pie? Um, is it something that's more aesthetic than that? Is it something that's more spiritual than that? I think a lot of the shared assumptions about culture that I'm talking about are open to debate. They may be bull. And uh, it could be that writers today are writing for the same reasons that writers have always written. But at least we'll have it on record that a certain number of them think so. Um, in effect, I think younger writers today have a harder time conceiving what their success might be. Every writer fantasizes about their success, their his or her success. In fact, that's, if you spend five hours writing, I would say two and a half are gone like that in the fantasies of your success. One good sentence sends you into a reverie that may take the rest of the day. Um, and then it's time for a snack. Um, what is it that we think about now when we think about success? I flagrantly uh, imagined when I was in my teen years that my attempt to become a writer would culminate in an appearance on the Johnny Carson show. Um, He's, I was very, very, very upset when he retired. Um, and I don't know, Dave Letterman just doesn't do it in terms of, uh, you know, there used to be when, when the Carson show was an hour and a half long, they had this writer slot. It was the le least watched period of the program, 12.30 to 12.45. And I used to see writers on there. And I thought, well, that'll be me someday. Carson, Hollywood, limos, the whole bit. Well, no. Um, pen panels is actually what it culminates in. Um, when we do fantasize about our success, though, we also do have certain more serious aims in mind. I think all of us do. And what I would like to find out tonight is what those serious things might be. So with that, I'll turn it over to Tom Beller. Oh, I have to read the bios. Tom Beller is a staff writer at The New Yorker and a founding editor of the literary magazine and a superb literary magazine, by the way, Open City. His short stories have appeared in a number of magazines and in Best American Short Stories, 1992. And he's down there. Um, Jill Eisenstadt uh, is the author of two very witty and very warm and very um, smart novels, From Rockaway and Kiss Out, and they're both published by Knopf. And her journalism has appeared in um, the New York Times, New York Magazine, Allure, Glamour, Mirabella, Mademoiselle, and a number of other magazines. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband, uh, the novelist Michael Trinkard. Um, Brianna Heineman, Heineman um, was born in 
bred and raised in Chicago and now lives in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. She's currently working on an independent film, Chi-Town Road Dogs, which she wrote. She's also in the midst of uh, completing a collection of short stories as yet untitled. Walter Kern was raised in Schaefer, Minnesota on a farm. His first book was a collection of stories, My Hard Bargain. Uh, and his second was a novel, She Needed Me, which is just out in paperback. And finally, Martha McPhee uh, is in the graduate writing program at Columbia University and is finishing uh, a novel, an excerpt of which has appeared in a superb literary magazine called Open City. And her nonfiction has appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle. And we welcome them all. Please give them a hand. So, Tom, will you start off and tell us why you became a writer, among other things? <coughs> Hello. Ah. Needless to say, I'm just going to start with the other things because I, you know, I don't know why I became a writer. In fact, it's only recently that I've kind of gotten around to introducing myself as a writer and not feeling stupid about it. But I'm happy that I don't feel stupid about it anymore. Um, I can't exactly, I mean, pride is not quite the word that I feel about the, the idea, you know, the vocation or something. Um, but I'm getting used to it slowly, I suppose. Um, you know, Vince had told me that the subject was going to be why write. Discouraging moment for me right now. Several people I know in the audience are starting to scowl noticeably, which is very upsetting for me. Please stop. Um, and it's impo I can't, I can possibly summon, you know, an answer as to why write. And the best way I might even begin to approach it is to think about why, why one shouldn't write. Um, I suppose one shouldn't write because it's extremely difficult and because it tends to pay rather poorly. <laughs> and the, the <laughs> thank you for that. So, um, because it's sort of, I suppose, to be honest about it, requires a, a huge amount of sort of self-reflection. And simultaneous with that, there's the sense that the very thing that you're lavishing so much time and attention on, on is, is, you know, not being apprehended or, or known about by the rest of the world, which can lead to a very sort of discouraging sensations on the subway. <laughs> The subway being a particular sort of favorite of mine to get upset about the state of literary culture, I get very involved in what people are reading. It was a big mistake. Um, not because I get upset necessarily when, when I see someone reading like a schlocky book. It's just when I actually do see someone reading something that I have read or that I like, I, I'm always fighting the terrible desire to be like, hello, you know, I'm so happy to see that, you know, and... <laughs> Can I have your name and address, and so forth? Um, uh, further, another reason not to write, I guess, is that it, in one's attempts to sort of procrastinate writing, you're, you're led down this terrible road of, of, of just, you know, m emotional vice, essentially, if not physical vice. I mean, I mean, among them, I, I can't even begin to list them, but the things one does to avoid, you know, 
writing, it's preposterous, the list, it's huge and endless and entails <laughs> all kinds of things. And I was thrilled to hear that um, Vince talk about the amount of time spent fantasizing versus writing. Typically, I thought I was the only person who did that. <laughs> all this, needless to say, adds up to the fact that you know writing is sort of a catastrophe to be involved in. It's a disaster. <laughs> Why would anyone want to do it? I don't know. I, I have no sense of what... There was no very grand moment in the evolution of myself as a writer when I sort of you know, hoisted a flag and changed my wardrobe or something. Um, I happened... I had a, a really encouraging professor. It was a fine novelist named Jerome Badanis at my college who um, sort of, it was with him that it first occurred to me that one might be a writer. Um, and the thing about, the thing that led me to thinking about being a writer with this one guy was that there was a certain quality about the way he viewed the world that seemed sort of rich to me. I mean, I'd, looking back on it, I'd sort of written stories and written and done things that, like writerly things since I was, you know, in eighth grade. I mean, in eighth grade I was, my school had this double grading system of content over mechanics. And I was the, the king of the excellent over unsatisfactory mark, <laughs> which, I, which I great pride in. But I didn't think about it until I met this, until this Jerome Badana's character sort of registered with me, with me in a certain way. And the way that it registered was, I thought that he had this, a very broad and sort of rich way of looking at the world. And I couldn't, it didn't, it seemed more complicated than just him being a nice guy or something. It seemed informed by things. It seemed informed by like things he'd read, things he'd thought about, things he'd written. He seemed to actually, although I didn't, I couldn't have said it in these words at the time, looking back on it, it seems like he was sort of nourished by his own efforts. Um, and I suppose to some extent I've been somewhat nourished by my own efforts as generally futile as they've been, um, but not entirely. And that's a whole nother ball game, which is I have noticed this weird parallel between writing and um, oh, I wish I could think of a better word for saying this that's not going to sound appalling, but sports, the word is sports. Um, although I'll put it in a literary context. It's like this little, it's like in sports you're always like trying to do something and it's always going wrong and then you have this like, great, it goes right. And it, it, it's a terrific feeling. And the, there's actually an interesting moment in, this, in Rabbit Run um, when this guy hits a golf ball. Golf is, I guess, a I don't really like golf, but golf is like the king's, the, the ultimate sport of, the, in this, of this sensation in which you're trying to sort of hit it, you know, like this baseball has this too or something. You're just trying to, and then ah, at some point you just connect. It's very rare and elusive, and all that happens once you've done it is you just want to do it again. And of course you have to go through this whole horrendous experience to try to get back there. But, you know, I've at this point accumulated a small, extremely treasured, much thumbed through, looked after, and doted upon by myself, um, cachet of moments like that with writing. <coughs> and, and at this point, I'm sort of, you know, it seems worth it. I think you're describing flow. Um, I never really made a conscious decision to become a writer. If you would have asked me uh, as a kid what I wanted to be, depending on my mood, I probably would have said either an Olympic skater or an auctioneer. But, and I was a music major in college. But I started writing at a very early age, and it quickly became a compulsion, not just stories, but 
Barbie dialogue, lists, notes in class, menus, um, just you name it. Academy Awards acceptance speeches. I went through a whole <laughs> stage of that. Um, but prior to that, I had another c related compulsion, and that was lying. I was a huge liar, and I was constantly getting into all sorts of trouble for it. One particular incident stands out, <clears throat> and that is when I was eight or nine, I was reading a mad magazine that I had stolen from my older brother. And in it was a poem that for some reason, completely impressed me. I thought it was the best thing I'd ever read in my life. So I proceeded to copy it over in my own handwriting and present it to my parents as my own. Um, evidently, it was juvenile enough that they bought this, and I was immediately the next Shakespeare, and they were jumping up and down. And just as my father was calling my grandmother to read this masterpiece to her, my brother appeared to blow my cover, and uh, so I knew I was in trouble again. I think I was already um, being punished for something else at the time, no TV for a week, so I figured they'd just tack on a couple of more days or something else. But in an unprecedented act of parenting, my parents said, well, you could have written this poem, you convinced us you wrote it. There's no reason you couldn't have written this. You're to sit down at the kitchen table and write your own poem, and you're not to get up from the kitchen table until you've finished this poem. So I whined for a while and um, struggled over it and eventually wrote the poem. I wish I could remember what it was about, but what happened was the re their reaction was even more enthusiastic than the Mad Magazine poem. They were completely ecstatic and making Xeroxes and reading it aloud every <laughs> night and everyone knew about it. It was magneted to the fridge. So I soon realized that it was fine to make up stuff as long as you wrote it down. Then you would get approval for it. And um, for me, writing really is still all those same things, um, compulsion, love and punishment. Mm. Um. Uh, I, uh, I tend to write to purge myself. Um, and I, I learned this from old lover of mine, Langston Hughes. Some of you might know of him, others might not, but he lived through the Harlem Renaissance and he was my lover for a long, long time. Um, we got together when I was about 11. It's kind of young, right? <laughs> I know, but my mom didn't mind, so it was okay. Um, and I fooled around on him for a while, too. I fooled around on him with this man named James Baldwin, this woman named Zora Neale Hurston. Um, another woman named Lorraine Hansberry, another man named Ralph Ellison. And I just danced all through that Harlem Renaissance period, and I was a wild child, I have to tell you. Um, but Langston Hughes and I first started when he showed me his poem in an English book, old English textbook of mine. His poem was um, 
Negro Speaks of Rivers. And uh, that was it for me. That was it. I said, I want to be Langston Hughes. So I sat down and wrote um, something very similar to Negro Speaks of Rivers. <laughs> and um, I've been writing since then, mostly poetry. Um, Time went on, I started writing short stories and eventually essays, so on and so forth. Um, this thing called a writer has happened in the, recently actually, I, I've always written. Um, I've never considered myself a writer. Um, I, I write. Some people like it, some people don't. Sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. Most, more, more often than not, I don't. Um, but I'm sure every person who writes feels this similar at times. Um, anyway, back to me and Langston, because that's the best part. Everything else is boring. Um, I, I'm. I'm sure most of you know that Langston was probably dead by the time I was 11, but he came from the grave to fill my fill me up, you know. And uh, he did. And when I write, I tend to give thanks in in most of my writing. Um, for me, writing is a hurting process. Um, it hurts. Mo for some strange reason I cry, even if I'm writing something funny, I eventually end up crying. But uh, I always keep in, for me when I write, I keep, I, I'm praising people. Um, more often than not praising other writers or people that I admire in this life. Um, Being a young writer, I, I, I see myself as an old, old spirit, usually. I don't quite know what it means to be a young writer. Um, my, I lived for so long in the Harlem Renaissance period through writers like James Ball, Winslow, and Neil Hurston. Um, and wanted to give thanks to them, wanted to show them that they're, that they did something to me. And uh, let them know that I appreciate it. They gave me something to use in my world to keep me going, to help me through. So that's why I write. Um, and it's not, you know, that's just why I write. Hi, uh, I'm Walter. I do my, uh, boy, feedback time. It's 
something about me. I'm radioactive or something. Uh, I was going to say, I, I do most of my public speaking in 12-step uh, meetings, so I want to start out, hi, I'm Walter, I'm a writer, um, and then go into the pathology of that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that's not appropriate. People, whoa. to go further away. Boy, thanks. <laughs> you know, I, I told someone in the audience that I was a great public speaker, and uh, now I feel like I'm inside a giant blood pressure cuff. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I feel like I was, this is serious, I feel like I was tricked into becoming a writer. Uh, I was at college, and uh, being a writer was a kind of fashionable thing. I remember seeing postcards, those black and white, very romantic postcards of Faulkner and Beckett and so on. It's sort of what we could afford to decorate with. And, uh, you know, you looked at them longingly and people, whoa, this may be impossible then, I don't know. Um, anyway, whatever was cool at college about becoming a writer, I fell into and uh, it was a process of having to put my money where my mouth was. At each stage in my writing career, that's been the problem. Uh, the first one was that, you know, to, to sort of pose as one, you had to actually do some writing. And uh, <laughs> the shortest form and most, uh, the easiest to bring off, it seemed to me at that time, was poetry. Um, and there were a lot of poets, and I was in an academic community. That was the first trick. I thought, because of all these poets around, that being a poet was something that was well supported by society. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, so, and so I wrote a lot of poetry and I adopted a lot of poetic uh, manners and gestures. And I, I think like anything, you work from the outside in. You know, uh, There's the dream of becoming the thing. And finally, the dream of becoming it becomes the enemy of actually doing it. I, I fell for the dream. Uh, whatever it was. But what made me feel tricked was that as college went on and I became more and more enthusiastic about writing, uh, my classmates seemed to be bailing out at an, a pretty alarming rate. Uh, <coughs> I sort of thought when it came time graduation, you know, we were all going to get apartments together and not have much money, uh, if ever, and, uh, you know, work together and, and sort of support each other. and then. Here were all the people who had sold themselves as writers at college lined up at the placement office for other type jobs, Wall Street jobs. And uh, though it really honestly felt like I'd been fooled. I'd been gullible enough to think that you know this was an occupation. Um, and because I was at college and there were people being paid for this occupation, uh, it seemed to have a future. And. Uh, I, I got out in the world, and that just didn't turn out to be the case. Uh, the way I furthered my writing career was sort of by making s sideways approaches to it, working at magazines, uh, writing what now was really regrettable uh, fashion, ad sort of attitude-oriented journalism for places like Vanity Fair magazine. But, and
I'm exploring the binary uh, uh, experience of, of gender and image, uh, you know, in, in wood and uh, melted uh, crayon. And um, um, I always thought, God, I wish I could just sit up there and show, like, just, just hold the pages up and say, right now, I'm trying to um, capture a sense of uh, rebellion and disgust. In this page, you know, uh, I'm after something a little nicer, something a little softer, a little warmer. Perhaps human affection will penetrate uh, the page. But by the next page, I'm after death, you know. Um, and they were able to do that, and the writers weren't able to do that, not in any way, shape, or form, because what it is that they're trying to say is everything. And, uh, and they're trying to find a form that contains everything. And um, the finding of a form that contains everything is a futile uh, goal, but that's what we do. Did anyone else want to take on that uh, question? Oh. It's a serious question, and it's an important question. Personally, when I write, I don't quite try to say everything <laughs> because I couldn't fit it into the pages. Right, but, um, well, that's yeah. I, uh, I, um, each thing I write says different things. Um, I tend to think that, well, I like art that says something to me. And I think that what it says, when I, when I write, and like I said before, I often write for me. Um, I, 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 I assume that when people read it, they're gonna get from it what they, what they, what they get from it, what they wanna hear. I don't always assume that they're gonna get what I was trying to say or in the way that I was trying to say it. Um, I said before, that I, and which we, I said a couple of times, that I write to give thanks and to represent a certain world. Um, <laughs> oops, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and to, <laughs> let me lighten up. And to, uh, you know, represent a certain world. Um, I think within that there's a lot that can be said, but I do agree with what she said um, to a certain degree about having something to say when you write, but then always what you have to say is not what you, I don't expect people to get that. I expect them to draw their own conclusions from whatever I write, but hopefully purge whatever it is I had to say. Mm. The gentleman on the side. Uh, yeah, since you're all under 30, more or less. Hell no. And yeah. you're going to live to be over 100 years, every single one of you, I'm sure. Uh, how do you feel about what writing is going to be like in, in the future, particularly in regard to the kind of uh, humongous technology that is almost on us now with computerized networks interactive media. I heard recently that there's some movement to get the entire Library of Congress put into a, a computerized database. 
My feeling is that pretty soon we're going to be deluged with billions or trillions of words compared to what there are now. And there's already a lot. Yeah, there, there is. You know, there are millions, there are, well, thousands of books printed, printed every year. So I wonder if, if you have any ideas or anticipations of how this kind of stuff is going to influence what you write. Uh, do writers feel that they're going to get lost among all this huge ocean of words that are going to be coming at us? Do we have and any? Are, do you have any ideas and anticipations? Do we have about any this? internet uh, grazers on the panel? It's a good way to put it. I'm an internet widow. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that um, actually I'm pretty optimistic because I think fax machines and internet and the whole electronic highway or whatever it is mm -hmm. is um, parkway. It's bringing I would like to back call it. a lot of. It's really bring back letter writing, which. I felt like I was one of the few people who still wrote letters, um, and now it's it's much more it's easier and cheaper to send email than to make a phone call. So, um, as far as feeling lost, we, I think we all feel already lost. So we couldn't be more mm. lost. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I mean, the 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 deluge began a long time ago, um, and now there's just going to be more. So it's like saying to someone who's over their head in the ocean that you're going to be even further out over your head in the ocean um, in terms of words and images and stories and narratives. On the other hand, what I think about when I think about that inundation of, of technology is that someone's writing all that stuff and maybe they'll have something interesting to say. Thank you. Um, one of the, in, one of the uh, Things we could talk about is computers, though, but we won't. Yes, you. All right. Bye. Um, I guess it's sort of in reference to what Walter was talking about about being a writer and the whole sort of notion of being a writer. And I've heard almost everyone talk about the sort of the sacrifice involved and you know and how painful it is. And I think that kind of goes along with the idea of, of being a writer as being something sort of kind of heroic and sort of like like you know you're compelled to do something that's you know so horrible for you at the same time you know it tears you apart but you have to do it and I, I wonder I mean do you really feel I mean do you sort of buy into this this her heroic notion of being a writer because you know at the same time you're talking about that I mean is that really how you feel do you feel that torn I, you know what I'm saying I don't, I don't know making it clear no well you know it, there seemed like it, there was a time when tuberculosis played a big part and the pain of being a writer. I, I was at I was at Keats's. It's that time is coming back apparently. Yeah, I was I was at Keats's house in Rome this summer, and reading letters <coughs> from Keats to Shelley and uh, lesser poets who were Keats's friend to Keats and so on, and they were incredible fops and poseurs. Let me tell you, they were talking about things they couldn't possibly understand. Uh, <coughs> They were getting involved in revolutions and sort of having meetings and putting out sort of public statements that no one could care less about. Um, you know, some of them were actually out there fighting and dying in them, you know, Byron. And uh, I think it's always been a part of being a writer to pose. Uh, I was at Oxford and uh, the Oxford tradition, uh, around the poets especially, Auden, Isherwood, etc., was the sort of set yourself up in a room with a certain sort of uh, 
furniture and clothing and, uh, and practice saying poetic things. And somehow, though this seems to be sort of ass backwards, and I can understand the concern of people who are saying, but what do you want to say? This seems to uh, create authors who have a lot to say. I mean, you have Auden, who couldn't have been more of a kind of a fop and a, a dandy when he began, becoming really the most legitimately public and political poet uh, of the middle of the century. Um, and so, I, also about this what you have to say business. Um, you know, I, I felt a little castigated as a member of this panel when this person spoke. And, uh, you know, I think writers do have some things to say, but I really think they're loath to say them out loud. Uh, writers are people who want to be heard but stay hidden. You know, that's why they're not broadcasters or anchormen. And, uh, and, and, and so I, I think that everyone here probably has something they deeply want to say. With me, it's maybe that people should love each other more. <laughs> but see how trite that sounds? Yeah. I mean, I, I'd rather make a story of it. Um, which side are we on? This side. Okay, when I started taking uh, writing courses in college, I had this mistaken notion that I had to go out and read every single work of important major literature, you know, ever written before I could even put down a word. And Correct. then I saw a lecture by a writer, uh, William Gaddis, who said, uh, if you don't, if you're going to be a writer uh, and you hadn't read, you know, most of the great works that you want to read, by the time you're 30, you're never going to get to them. I was wondering, uh, are among uh, the panelists, if there's any uh, great works that you haven't read that make you feel sort of uneasy or inadequate that you haven't read them yet? No. I'm sorry. Who wants to take that? Martha? There's so many that I haven't read. I could just lock myself up in a room for the rest of my life and still have never read them all because I'm also an incredibly slow reader. But um, it, doesn't, it doesn't make me feel inadequate. It just makes me feel that I have a lot of pleasure ahead of me. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get to them when I can. And um, I, 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 uh, I guess that's, that's it. Um, Maybe to, to follow up though, what do you think is the relationship between how much you read and how much, and, and, how, and, how, and how authorized you are to, to write? Which is well, to say, I remember reading an interview with Tom McGuane in which he said that he, he's a, like a rancher and rodeo-ite. Uh, uh, but he spends his winters reading and he said he felt obligated to have uh, some information. I mean, to have something to, you know, to, to have something to give to the world. Um, we all read for pleasure. Do, do, you, f do you have a, a, a program of, of study uh, besides pleasure? Yeah, it constant it constantly changes, and it it, um, it depends. If I I'm reading a biography right now of um, Willa Cather, and I'll I'll get a whole new reading list from from this biography, and I always have some project going. Obviously, 
the more you read, the I, it can only help your writing. You have to you have to read a lot. It's it's part it's part of it. It's part of the pleasure of it of writing. Um, and reading projects are incredibly fun. I, I get a lot of ideas from from reading. And um, but I think I mean I'm always going to feel incredibly inadequate when it comes to to reading because there there's there's so much that <coughs> to yeah. read, and there's so much uh, great stuff. Um, but I guess yeah, it's very interesting to look at in, in this issue. But on this issue, by the way, um, Edmund Wilson's journals from the 1960s. He was 63 uh, to 73 years old in the course of these journals, and a major, major American intellectual and still constantly pursuing, but out of the sheer pleasure of the pursuit, with no sense of uh, dreariness or labor, um, f more things to read. It's very kind of inspiring. This side. Um, do you guys think that uh, the academic literary magazines and uh, the college reviews, you know, the $6 to $12 magazines that I can't afford, uh, do you think they play too much of a role in determining the availability of new fiction to the public? And uh, have their opinions become too valued or overrated to the point that they control the direction of contemporary writing? And how can, how can uh, writers break out of that into the general public? Mm. Tom, you published one of these babies. How much does uh, Open City cost? A mere $5. All right. What do you think? Are there too many of them? Well, I think that the small college literary magazines are not exactly a seismic force in the literary culture, but I do think they're really good that they exist, and in fact, a godsend in a way, because, I mean, just think if there was no one to actually send you rejection slips, it would get unbelievably lonely depressing, <laughs> so they at least serve that purpose. But I don't think there's a tremendous conspiracy amongst them um, to either, you know, to prevent good things coming out. I don't think they're necessarily some sort of plankton on the literary scene. I do think they're a bit expensive, but like I said, I, I'm involved with one that's sort of cheap for just that reason. Um, it seems that you all have a very personal reason for writing, whether it is um, to purge yourself or to receive, the, to receive praise, or it's a compulsion, or a punishment, or what have you. Do you feel at all that with the uh, breakdown of the oral tradition and the rise of print, that somewhere along the line writers have, um, or some writers, have, have a personal reason to write, and uh, because they can, they can get published, if they can get published, that that's it, that there's no longer a need or uh, to pass on a message or to to tell about history and uh, to give whoever it is that's reading you um, an important message. Is there a loss of that or is it so personal that it's basically this is what I want to write and so I'm writing? Well, I, I suppose it could be both, which is to say that you've had some set of experiences that are somewhat particular to your time. I mean, this is what's sort of interesting about contemporary fiction, I, to me at least, is how other individuals are like 
assimilating all the stuff that's going on, some of which is recognizable to me because it's the same world. But I mean, I don't think the two are necessarily mutually exclusive. It could be, well, here I am in New York City in 1993. There's some kind of, there's some piece of fiction that's, you know, developed against that backdrop, um, which, you know, living here now, I have some view upon it, not imagining what it's like to be in Nova Scotia in like 1910. Not that that would necessarily be bad. Um, worrisome, but not necessarily bad. But, um, I mean, that, that doesn't preclude it being informative in a way. I mean, I, I guess it doesn't sort of reach back and back and back and sort of put things in a tremendous historical context the way that perhaps some or like orally repeated tales do. Um, but I don't think the two are, are separate in any way. In fact, sometimes the two can be joined really tightly, I think. Over here. In Eudora Wolke's book, When Writers Beginnings, she constantly refers to the process of observation, how important it is to observe people and interact with people. How do you incorporate that skill into your writing? Hmm. Who wants to take that? How do how do we incorporate <coughs> the skill of observance into our writing? Observing of other people and, and in the world. Um, in her book, she she refers to uh, the importance of listening to people and to sounds and rhythms in nature and in the world around her and and also um, to interacting with people and the, the skill of, <coughs> of listening to and interacting with people and how important that is. So how do you incorporate those skills into your writing process? I keep um, very detailed journals um, eavesdrop on people all the time and um, I'm a horrible person to take out to dinner because of that. Writers are terrible thieves, um, which is to say wonderful thieves, I think, and um, will use anything. And, but you can't always predict when you're going to use it or when it pops up into your head that someone said something um, or you saw something. But when it comes in, it's, it's, it's sort of, you know what we're like? We're like um, these South American birds that build gigantic nests, which then they abandoned and build more. We'll take anything we can find to build up this nest and make it look decorative to our eyes and then move on and do it again. One more. Um, I'd like to ask Tom and Walter, who are the two or three m the writers that they that you that mean the most to you right now, contemporary well writers who are probably still alive, and uh, I'm particularly interested in fiction that that strike you as the most authentic or the or the most uh, important voices right now for you personally. I'm just curious. Walter, you want to start? Um, I, I boy. Flannery O'Connor, she's dead. She's been dead for 20 years or 30 years. I don't know. She doesn't seem dead to me. I keep picking up her books. Um, I like Southern writers. I'm not not from the South. I, I come from Minnesota. I wished there was an oral tradition. There was a silence tradition in Minnesota. <laughs> uh, 
and, and so I think I, I, I envy writers who do come from that sort of extroverted background. Flannery O'Connor, uh, Barry Hanna is a writer I've been reading a lot recently. I don't know why he sort of swings for the fences and doesn't seem to give a damn. And you know, it, one of the problems nowadays with the the money that's involved with writing and the lack of money and uh, and the high stakes. You know, the company I publish with just merged to become the second largest entertainment conglomerate in the world the other day, and you know, I, I don't really feel a part of that. And uh, <laughs> and uh, they're counting on you. And, and so and so I, I I like writers like Barry Hanna who who, who seem to operate completely indifferent to the fact that there is a publishing industry. Um, so I've been reading a lot of him recently. And uh, I also like a lot, I've also been reading a lot of these strange uh, sort of hard-boiled crime novels that are being republished by Black Wizard Press um, from the 50s. I write a lot about small towns and I think that some of the best writing about small towns was being done by sort of strange uh, hard-boiled writers like Jim Thompson and so on. They're, they're not really out there now. I mean, this is two dead people out of three, but that's who I'm reading. I don't know. I mean, I had, I'd given this some thought prior to, to this particular event, and it's very difficult to come up with these things, I think partly because, you know, it, if, as Vince said, said earlier, if, if trying to write is trying to like incorporate, if not everything, then as much as you could possibly bring yourself to try and incorporate, invariably you're going to be influenced by just so much. And there's going to be so much stuff floating around that almost has equal billing. I mean, in sort of separate compartments. That said, uh, uh, I mean, I guess J.D. Sounder's alive. He's somebody who I would turn to with some frequency. Um, I'm tempted to say Philip Roth. I love Philip Roth, although I can't help but notice that, I mean, he's published about 20 books and I have not read all 20 or even close to all 20. Um, it's been a long, sort of lifelong fantasy of mine to cite John Bonham as a big literary influence. <laughs> there you have it. Um, and um, two contemporary writers that I'm extremely fond of are Mary Gateskill and Dennis Johnson, uh, who I should add or not, don't write very much like the way that I write, but in some ways I don't think that's necessarily what makes it influence. Like I think sometimes people are influenced by things, literary and otherwise, that are like much different than them. Sometimes almost like opposites are equally compelling than things that you recognize in yourself. I think this is, yeah, go ahead. Okay, this, this was kind of touched on before, but I, I, wanted to, I wanted to go back to it. I was wondering if you ever feel like you're overwhelmed by the volume of published word and have feelings that what you're trying to say has been said before and that you're not the first one to get there and maybe you're not doing it as well as somebody else has. Mm. And, and how do you deal with that if, if you have those feelings? The refrigerator is helpful. <laughs> um, uh, I worked in bookstores a bunch, and the books become, they come in every week, new ones, endless supplies of them, fantastic, overwhelming quantities. You can't believe the death that's happening in the American forests when you work in a bookstore. Uh, and I just felt like, my God, 
I'm going to drown. I'm going to be swamped in this stuff. But it's, it, it doesn't necessarily relate to that thing that's happening at 3 o'clock in the morning for Tom. For those of us who are over 30, at around 10, 10.30 to noon uh, is a prime time. Um, it, it, you just ignore it because there's a certain amount of arrogance that it takes to be a writer. There's a certain amount of, of, in, of fortitude. Just the ability to withstand the fact that your work stinks and nobody cares about it and no one's ever going to care about it and, uh, and occasionally you get praised but most of the time you don't and uh, you just keep going anyway. And I think there are a lot of people who have talent as writers who have wonderful ears and wonderful visions of the world but who don't have that stomach that it takes. And, it, uh, uh, and uh, many of us won't in 10 years, I bet. Uh, there's some of us who won't be here as writers. And that's perfectly honorable. Uh, Juan Rufo was a wonderful Mexican writer and he wrote uh, very revolutionary, very, very important books, two of them, very slender, one a collection of stories and the other a novel called Pedro Paramo. And they were combined maybe, uh, probably under 200 pages, although I might be wrong about that, but somewhere in that neighborhood. And he just stopped writing. And they said to him, well, why did you stop writing? And he said, I said everything that I had to say. Which I think is kind of nice, as long as there's enough royalties. Um, can we just do one more question? Beca well, uh, no, wait, let's do the people who are standing here and then we're, we're, we'll be done. This side, yeah. Okay. Um, film has come up a lot tonight for one reason or another. I'm not quite sure why. I guess Did or didn't? Has come up a lot. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask Brianna, since she's working on a screenplay, what it's like to write for um, a media that's so... I mean, it seems to me like you're dealing with more than one. Obviously, you are dealing with more than one medium when you're t when you're dealing with film. How is it to write um, for film? To have to think. I mean, maybe you have to think in terms of images more than you do with with fiction. I don't know, but wanted to know if you wanted to talk about that a bit. When I first started writing, I wasn't I wasn't big on dialogue, so I stayed as far away from it as I could. Um, but when I started writing for film, it was all dialogue. But well, in writing a shooting script, shooting script, and you're putting in the cuts, that that made that brought me back to writing, even though it's different, putting in the cuts, but for me it's the cuts in the film that tells, so m that's more similar to writing non-film, um, that tell a story, in my opinion, like film, rather than just the dialogue. It's not, it's, it's different, but it's it's really similar. And I, I thought it was very different until I started writing shots. And when I started writing shots, I, I kept thinking story, story, is this the same as a story? Um, I would say a story is 
for me a little bit harder than it hurts a little bit more than writing for film and in writing for film I don't always have to really feel what somebody is thinking about in writing a story I tend to really feel what's really feel what's going on with the character and um, I'm sorry no I'm, I'm I thought about the question when someone, a woman had asked about um, the pain and do we see ourselves as heroes? No, I'm not. The pain, it is a pain. I don't see myself as a hero. I just, it hurts more to write a story than it does to write a film. I feel like I'm giving birth to people when I write a story and it just, it hurts more. It takes more out of me. My question relates to two questions that were asked by other women. Uh, a woman over here talked about the oral tradition, and then a woman at this mic talked about uh, language and rhythms and sounds. And one of the things that I was thinking about is it's so wonderful to, at 4 a.m. or whenever, read a book out loud, which is not something that we do all the time, or to go and have a book read to you, you know, and that experience of. 30 or 40 people crammed into this tiny bookstore and Toni Morrison, like idol of all idols, or whoever the reader is that you so admire reading to you. And I just wanted to know if, if you all participate often in, in reading to your audience, and is that different, or does that um, affect at all your writing and your thinking and feeling about writing? Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm a firm believer in oral tradition, and I grew up with a blind great-grandmother who couldn't read Braille either. Um, and I used to read to her when I was little, and I would read my poems to her when I was little. And she told me stories, and all around my house, we told, my family's from the South, <laughs> and the South is just full of the oral tradition. Um, when talking about the generational gap between writers, or even more so between people who read writing, I don't feel like the younger generation read as much, and that's probably due to the educational system more than anything. And I would like to see, um, I know that for, certain peoples in West Africa, the oral tradition is still very important. We seem to take that for granted in this country. I mean, we seem to not see it as relevant at all in the, in the, in the passing down of history or anything. And I would like to see more importance placed on the oral tradition because in my opinion, a story is a story whether it's written or told. Um, so do you, have you read your work aloud to an audience? Actually, I've, I've read not stories, poetry a lot. Poetry. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to hear from the other. Yeah, anyone else want to comment on what it's like to read to uh, aloud and what it does to your work and how you feel about it, and et cetera? I'm rather fond of the experience. I had an extremely corrupting experience, in fact. Rather early on, I had written a story that I thought was extremely somber and intense about it featured sort of comatose baby who belonged to a junkie who lived next door to a photographer who was in love with, uh, et cetera. And I read this story and 
was greeted with extremely appreciative peals of laughter on the part of the audience, which is really confusing. To or doesn't admit to writing for praise isn't telling the truth. I definitely wrote for praise. Uh, unfortunately, the institutions which, whose job is to give you praise, universities and so on, I'm no longer involved with, and I have to sort of, you know, go searching for it. And it, it's very difficult. Uh, there's about three days a year, right at, or every couple of years, right after your book is published, that you get the real stroke. You, sometimes you get hit. Uh, but uh, that hasn't turned out to be a good reason. Um, almost all the external reasons uh, that I uh, began with have been sort of systematically taken from me. Uh, I don't look as cool as I thought I would as a writer. I don't, um, <laughs> I don't get the praise I thought I would get. I don't participate in, in the great sort of media circus, but sometimes I feel like writers, literary writers of the R&D department, sort of low-paid R&D department for uh, Hollywood and the big media. And I feel like we're those people who big corporations pay to be in the basement making sort of planes that will never really fly, um, <laughs> bicycles that, you know, uh, you know pedal-powered steamboats or something. And, and every once in a while, one of our characters or our, you know, situations takes off and they, you know, somebody makes a movie out of it. But mostly we work in the basement, underpaid, very necessary to the whole, you know, octopus of the media, but really it's, it's peons. Um, I, I think that's how it works. Um, but, uh, the reason to keep being a writer is the is the what's problematic. The reason to be one in the first place, undergraduate fantasy, is is kind of obvious to me. The reason to keep at it is difficult, uh, and I, I would say that I'm still groping at that. It's probably the situation of most people here at this age to have just lost that first flush of wonderment and not had that big movie sale uh, or whatever. Um, so, so I sort of find myself, you know, like Dante at, around this age, you know. <laughs> that was a great evocation of how, you know, it feels, I think, to be a writer at 30. You're very lost. Now, this probably doesn't work. Okay. There you go. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, I didn't always think I would be a writer. I didn't write in college. I, there were no even um, creative writing classes. I kind of, uh, relatively speaking, came to it um, late and, and very cautiously. But, but when, I do, when I do think about the fact that I'm doing it now, I often um, th I do I do think about my um, my mother a lot and my grandmother who my grandmother told zillions of stories and my mother was always encouraging me to write them down and I I kind of just did this out of habit and um, and was a terrible speller in in um, elementary school and 
failed all the spelling bees, and my mother suggested that I would I write um, criti um, creative essays about my grandmother for to extra credit in order to pass the, the spelling bees, and I I did that, and the not just pass the spelling bees, but um, for extra credit to make up for them, and the teacher loved them and read them to the class, and and. I did this regularly throughout high school because I never became a good speller and I still cannot spell at all. Although my father says that if you're a bad speller, it's a sign that you might be a good writer or that you could be a good writer, so there's hope still. But, um, but then when I was, I always thought I would be a, a cook and I was a, a very good cook, so I, um, I don't know why I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't because I guess I was at a point where I had to make the decision between kind of pursuing cooking and pursuing writing and I thought it would be uh, just a lot more challenging and interesting to to be n not that the cooking wouldn't have been but to constantly be writing and reading and thinking um, made me made me push for that challenge and I feel very much that it's often I'm wondering whether I made the right choice or not, but I'm still very much there in that period between, what, you know, was this choice um, right or wrong, or um, I'm still discovering it. And but but writing is a discovery because it, it keeps you alive in so many ways about. You, you constantly, I constantly am thinking about the project I'm working on. Everything I think about makes me think about that project, and and I, I really love I love that. Um, I love seeing the world and in terms of um, just noticing. Um, but I was very caught noticing what what's going on around me and, and maybe noticing it more than I would have if I were doing something else. Um, but I also um, was very cautious in my approach. I wasn't going to pursue this unless I was accepted to Columbia. And um, then I was going to give myself three years. Those three years are up as of uh, right now. But um, I and I was going to keep a job in publishing and, and work half time. I, I kind of had a very disciplined, rigid, rigid view of it because I, I didn't want to make a mistake. But now, now I'm here, I'm at the end of it, and I, I feel totally committed. And I still haven't finished my first novel. I still have a lot of big questions out there about whether you know, I'm going to do it and whether, it will, whether I'll be able to make a living of it. And um, I, I feel I feel totally committed, but it's it's a hard thing to say to say why um, to say why write it. I guess we've all been groping with that. Um, it just maybe becomes something that you have to do that you you want to share things with other people. I don't know that sounds so stupid and cliched, but it it becomes you. It really does. I noticed um, that we've subtly made a distinction, I think, between what it is to write 
That is the process, the sitting down and doing it and the creation of stories and stuff. And being a writer, which is problematic. And Tom said, it wasn't until recently that I had the nerve to say, I am a writer. I remember distinctly myself when I was in college and seeing all these burnouts hanging out in a coffee shop near where I live and lived then, and they all claimed to be writers. I said, God help me if I ever walk around claiming I'm a writer, because it seemed like the most bogus uh, uh, and unsupportable claim you could make. Brianna also mentioned, I think, you said that you don't necessarily think of yourself as a writer, but you write, and there's a distinction. And Walter started off talking about putting your money where your mouth is, which is sort of getting at the whole thing that a writer is making a claim on society. And if the writer is making that claim on society, he better or she better have the goods. Um, and I wonder if now we might look at the issue of what those goods are. What, uh, is there still, I think there once was a generally agreed upon moral authority that a writer achieved by virtue of the pursuit of truth, successfully accomplished once in a while. Um, and society was willing to recognize, sometimes too grudgingly and sometimes too late, the moral authority that that writer had achieved. Are we still seeking that moral authority? When we stand up and say, I am a writer, are we saying, I have something to tell you and it's going to change your life? Are we making those big claims that that, uh, say, Ted Solitaroff write, wrote about in Silence, Exile, and Cunning um, a f number of years ago, I think 1969, the essay was published, in which he talked about going out and living for 10 years with this incredibly grave and incredibly serious sense of mission, which ultimately killed what might have been, I think, his real talent. It's a, real, it's a very tragic essay in many ways because he realized that he was living a life that might have been wonderfully suited to depiction in art, but in fact he had a conception of the artist that went back to Thomas Mann and Joyce and all those things I talked about. And so he wrote these perfectly academic and perfectly dry and, and not particularly uh, effective stories. But he did have the gravity and the seriousness of purpose. There's something that's laughable now about that there's something, I mean, in terms of, of the culture that we live in, the idea that a writer writes in order to change the world has become almost unspeakable. And I wonder if anyone here is willing to take up this question of what their essential mission was when they started, if they had one. Was it just groping in the dark? Or, or was there a sense that the final outcome might have been to affect things. Anybody? Uh, let's see if this works better. Uh, I'm going to speak without it. Um, I actually wrote a book a couple of years ago that I thought 
about abortion, and I, I can just imagine the salesman. I later found out that when the salesman for the book company would go around to the stores, the book buyers would say, well, what's the book about? And they'd say abortion, and everybody would kind of get uncomfortable, and they'd move on to the next, uh, you know, the mystery novel that was being sold. Um, and so I did a kind of a case study writing this book, and, you know, not only whether you can affect things, but uh, how, how seriously you're taken if you try, because I, I, was, I was trying. And uh, in the case of that book, uh, I think I learned a kind of hard personal lesson that uh, that's not why people are reading right now. Um, why, you know, why you go out there with your own opinions and your own uh, particular axe to grind, and I did have an axe to grind in this book, I don't know, I guess arrogance, but uh, it, it sure, in the summer of Supreme Court decisions and all that, wasn't, you know, didn't make a ripple. Not so far as that particular issue was concerned. And uh, all I got was kind of a, you know, all I got was kind of a, you did a very important thing, you know, it's important to go on about these issues, but uh, who wants to read about them? And uh, I think I should have known that. I remember Flannery O'Connor saying that the idea was you snuck up behind the reader and then hit them over the head with a club. I, s I came running up with the club <laughs> <laughs> and said, look at this, I'm going to hit you, and people duck. <laughs> Brianna, you said you wrote in praise. That was one of the phrases you said that caught my, uh, that really captured me. Um, does that have about it a, a, a sense of ongoing purpose? Does it give a sort of meaning to what you do? Um, yeah. And if you could elaborate on it, because I think it's not yeah. something that a lot of us up here would have mm -hmm. thought to say. Yeah, I think that the people I praise in my work, um, well, first of all, I have to say that I think that we all write towards a certain, uh, well, I write towards a certain audience, that being um, more often than not African-American people. Um, and I think that the people that I praise in my work would like to know, I'd like to know that they're being remembered or that one can read my work and then maybe read, um, want to continue on to read the works of some of these people. I think that um, that we see ourselves, I, the one thing about the work of Langston Hughes that really influenced me was that I saw myself in his work. When I read his stories, I saw my life, I saw people that I knew and that I loved. Um, and I think that when people, hopefully that when people read my audience, they'll see themselves, they'll see a reflection of themselves, which they don't always see when they pick up a book. Um, 
so and so far as praise is concerned, I think that the people I praise in my work saw that too. They knew that when I picked up their book, I see myself in Janie. You know, I see myself in their various characters. I see my world, and I can relate to that world. So when I praise them, I do what they did for me, which has helped me to see myself and my world in their writing. Tom, why didn't you want to call yourself a writer? There it is, yes, take it. Speak into it. Hello. Um, I'm sort of glad that there's feedback with mine as well. Uh, I guess there isn't, because it seemed like a, a measure of spirituality. <laughs> um, why is it embarrassing is what I want to know. Why is it up to a certain point embarrassing to announce to someone at a cocktail party or in the street or, or to anyone you meet that you are a writer? Well, practically, it's, it's, it's embarrassing on a practical level because the, it invariably elicits the, a question to the effect of like, well, what do you do for a living? So sort of difficult to get through, <laughs> but I—I I mean, you know, I don't know because there's a certain kind of like self-assertion in it that's a little different if you say I'm an architect or I'm a lawyer or I'm a construction worker. You're sort of—it's implicit that you're sort of, you know, out on your own. You're doing something a little audacious and a little bit almost offensive, perhaps, ideally. Um, I just for a second wanted to address this idea, I guess, of that Walter had touched upon two ideas actually that Walter touched upon, one being writing towards, you know, running up to someone with the club um, visible, and, and the other being his, this idea of, of people operating in basements, since I have thoughts on both of them. Um, regarding the former, it's, it's starting to occur to me that a huge amount of my literary activity takes place very, very late at night, and that regards both reading and writing. And in my, my, I feel it might be because that's a very intimate time. Like if I'm really into a book, invariably it'll be like four in the morning and I'll be reading it frantically and, and then it'll get absurdly late, but I'll be too close to the end of the book to stop and then it'll just ruin my next day. But nevertheless, I'll have had this intense sort of intimate experience with this book because it was late and there was just nothing else around and it was a very solitary thing. And that's the circumstance where I tend to connect literature most intensely, which is not to say it's, I'm incapable at reading um, at three in the afternoon, or, or writing then, for that matter. But it's better at three in the morning, somehow. And this made me, I think this relates a little bit to what level you try to connect with people. I, I recently read a novel that was very interesting to me by a guy named Jonathan Franzen called The 27th City, which is really a really good book, very interesting, very literary, I suppose, in the sense that it was obviously concerned with a lot of things, and very well written, and very just moving, but also really broad. It had all kinds of big picture stuff. It had like a police chief and it had city politics. It had all kinds of the substance of, you know, the metro section and, and essentially what makes life go. And um, in that sense, it was extremely difficult. I mean, different, I should say, from, from things that I've tried to write and from a lot of the other writers that I like. And I was like, okay. This, uh, his book actually worked quite well, but I, it, it made me think somehow it wasn't like optimum four in the morning reading for me, although I, I quite, I like the book immensely, I recommend it wholeheartedly. But I mean, I, I think you, one tends to affect people, or one t like the sort of the little revolution one might ignite, getting back to that Joycean ideal that you brought up. You know, it, it's very individual, it's very personal. Um, 
And in a sense, that's what distinguishes, it's one of the last things that like literature can hold over these other mediums that compete with it now, like movies, most obviously, which is, um, I, you know, in the most optimum circumstance, you can connect with somebody really intensely and deeply in a way that will sort of last. Um, and that quickly, just to tie that to the basement idea, I mean, I agree with this notion of, of literary people kind of being the people work, working on preposterous projects that are doomed to fail but might have some residual use to the larger culture. But the one advantage that people writing books have, um, and I've been prompted to consider this actually by the invariable sort of seasonal New York Times article talking about the rags to story of some screenwriter uh, who's had a terrible time in Los Angeles but whose movie's now a big hit and we should all take, you know, be very heartened by this. And I'm always happy to see people making a living and love to hear about it and everything. But it, I do feel that in, in writing stories or uh, novels, in writing essentially, um, you have a certain authorial control and you have an ability to convey a sort of tone and an emotion and a, a certain degree of content that you can't have in any other form. And it's one of the last areas you can really do that. It's all you. It's you in like so many different ways. And if you can connect with someone at four in the morning, then you've connected with someone at four in the morning. I was also wondering what it, was, uh, what it must be like to have been bathed in praise, Jill, growing up, with the refrigerator laden with your, your works, the magnets falling, sliding, the papers fluttering down like doves. And then you're growing up and realizing that the world wasn't exactly in the same ecstatic mood uh, and so willing to, you know, give you the praise that Walter was talking about seeking. How have you um, contended? Um, actually, I try not to think about all this very much unless I'm asked on a panel. But um, <laughs> it amazes me just how, how impressed people are when they meet you and they find out you're a writer. And then so often how they'll go on to say, oh, but I never have read, I never have time to read. Or I've always wanted to write a book, but I just don't have time. And um, it's just puzzling to me, this whole idea of wanting to be a writer or thinking of yourself as a writer over just wanting to write or feeling the need to write. Um, I don't, as soon as you use the word moral, I just kind of cringe because I don't really think morality has any place in writing and I certainly wouldn't want to um, put my morality on anybody else and I don't really have any illusions that I'm going to change anything. Um, I basically write what I'd want to read and uh, hope someone else would want to read that. I don't think I really answered your question. So in other words, you don't have the awful, hideous, uh, disgusting re re repulsion that Tom experiences at the typewriter? Oh, I do, I do. It's, oh. it's misery. Okay. Uh, I use the word punishment, remember. Right. Um, this thing, also to choose a career, as Tom pointed out, in which you then have to spend the rest of your time trying to figure out ways not to do the thing that you've decided to dedicate your life to, uh, is very problematic. 
And talking to people who are not writers but who have been close to them, they all always manage to remark on the incredible laziness of writers. And I wonder if, some, if someone would address that. What do you do to waste time? How lazy are you? Let's be out with it. I'm incredibly lazy. Yeah? I, I often, it was nice to hear Tom say that because I often think I'm the only one doing, trying to write that's calling in painters, making travel reservations for my mother's trip to, you know, somewhere. And I, I feel like I spend um, most of the day planning ways uh, not to write, and then the rest of the day getting very mad at myself because I have no time to write. So it's these two things that that come head to head, and then finally I, I burst through it and find a day where I can write, and that feels glorious because I've written. But, um, you know, I spend a lot of time coming up with uh, new ideas for, for not writing, reading, mm -hmm. or not even doing that, sleeping. I sleep a lot. Yes, oh boy. <laughs> sleep. Deep, <laughs> inviting. <laughs> Sleep, yes. And that's writing, because you're dreaming. Right. You're thinking, right? <laughs> yeah. Thinking. The thing that, that you can accomplish as you get more established as a writer is the world, uh, the editorial world, has invented this tremendous machine to keep you from writing, and it's called Lunch with an Editor, <laughs> which you begin preparing for at about 10. Shower, shave, you know, pick out some clothes, run to the dry cleaner. You arrive at the editor's office at 1, but they don't really actually get you till 20 after or so, or you meet at a restaurant and he's late or she's late. He or she doesn't drink, but you do. <laughs> um, because what the hell, it's free. And then it's somehow it's 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon and you're in Midtown. Movies. So why not just proceed to some, you know, fun activity like shopping or browsing? Movies. Movies, yes, the late afternoon movie. Um, but that awaits only the successful writer. The unsuccessful writer doesn't get free lunch. Or the, not unsuccessful, but the developing writer. Um, uh, the, the younger writer. And I don't understand how it is that we also can live in New York. Do we all live in New York? Yes, we all live in New York. Not really. Oh, no. I, I can't really live in New York and write. Um, I he doesn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> that oh, sorry. oh, sorry. Excuse me. Can you hear with this yeah. now? Yeah. Um, I don't really live in New York and write. I, I find it's very hard. Uh, I live out in Montana when I'm doing writing and in New York when I'm doing business sort of having to do with writing um, and uh, that ha that developed over the years uh, I, I think this is a serious problem this lack of time and inability to concentrate I mean it it's funny in a way uh, and you can pin it on writers laziness but you know, th this is not a contemplative world anymore, and writing is a contemplative activity, and so is reading. And uh, if anything has become the enemy of them, it's time compression. Yeah. 
you know, it, it takes a hundred times as long to write a book as to read one. I think that should be a rule, or at least, you know, that should be the minimum. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm sort of resentful as a, as a writer that I live in a society in which time is so diced up and compressed that uh, not only do I seldom have a chance to get at it in the way I need to, the people who consume it don't really have a chance to consume it in the way they should. I'm kind of angry about that. Um, I do want to open up the floor to questions, by the way. I didn't mean to dominate the questioning process. There are microphones on either side. Um, you can ask about anything. Oh, good. Hello? Does this, is this yeah. working? Just put your mouth right up there. Is this working? Yeah. Oh, okay, there it is. Um, you all uh, went through, like, why you don't write or whatever it is that um, you do or don't do. But um, I was wondering, like, does anyone feel like they have anything in particular to say? Like, no, <laughs> I, mean, like, I mean, you've all said like, well, uh, these stories about how you started and all that, but like, do you really have anything of importance or personal, like, deep need to say to people? Like, why do you write books for people to read or stories for people to read? And I haven't heard anyone mention anything they have to say. It, uh, it, it, takes <laughs> us, it takes us hours and hours and hours just to think of one thing to say. Um, that's what we often are doing, I think, when we're sitting there. And then we say it, and it isn't really, um, uh, it's one is not able to encapsulate it, I don't think. Jill, did you want to answer well, that? Well, I was just going to say that I think of writing as a way to find out what you have to say. Yeah. I never know beforehand, but through writing you find out what it is you're thinking. So do you have any sort of... Um, do, do you see, your, see um, what is you're trying to say manifest with each work or, or are you still sort of like in a haze about like what it is you have to say? Or I, I'm just curious because um, other, um, uh, can I say artists, um, you know, seem to have like a kind of focus or something that they are trying to show people. Yeah. I mean, you have like musicians, dancers, actors, whatever. Yeah. It, they seem to have something to want to show people, a, a definite um, idea. And I, I just don't feel that from, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't heard anything <laughs> like that, that drive to, 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 um, to manifest something that people like you, uh, you had mentioned truth and, and how in the past a lot of people have tried to, to convey the truth to readers and, and is there anything, uh, anything sort of general and fundamental about why you write or what you write that, that you're, that's like manifesting itself to you, like, mm -hmm. you know, as you, as the years go on? I remember, uh, if I could take that for one second and then pass it on, uh, I was up at, at a writer's colony, an artist colony. So I basically just spent a year kind of write, I had this, it was at a bar, there was a reading series there, and um, I had a very site-specific, I had like the crowd, the place, I knew the sound I wanted, 
And uh, I, re, you know, I was back there a couple times, and I got it, and made me very happy. Okay, our last question. Okay, this isn't actually a question. Actually, I just have um, a small comment on the first question that was asked because it it angers me that you feel that nothing they've set up there was significant today because you know they're writers, and if you want to find what's significant, you go to their books. Um, Walter, I've taken out my hard bargain so many times I've been accused of stealing your book before I had to go buy it. And I continue to go back to your stories, uh, a different kind of imperfection. I've read it three times, and there's always something in there that I didn't see the first time. And for me to be able to connect with male characters, female characters, that is magic. And you know, you talked about praise, and it's just you get three days of it after you've published a book continue to write for the silent praise because you know there's many of us that continue to go back to those books. The biggest tragedy for me was Lori Colwyn's death. I was waiting for her, but it's good she wrote a book, but that's what I'm saying is just there are people out here who just continue to go back and I'm not gonna write a letter, but I love what you do and continue, please. What a Thank you for being the perfect last questioner. <laughs> and thank all the rest of you for coming and listening to us. Thanks so much. And keep pen in mind. <laughs> <laughs>